Well, good morning. It's great to be together once again to open the Word of God as we uh, worship Him this morning. I'll ask you to just bow with me as we ask God to attend to our time through prayer. Father, we do thank You for this chance this morning to once again study Your Word, to look at who You are, to understand what You have told us to allow us the ability to understand by the power of your spirit to to be able to comprehend the profound truths that are in your word lord there's so much misunderstanding in our world today even in what is called evangelicalism today <clears throat> misunderstanding of what you've said misdefining re uh, defining who you are by your very nature and character. And so therefore, men are confused. People are confused about the truth. <clears throat> we don't want to be confusing, Lord. We just want to know what you mean by what you say. So open our hearts to understand that. Allow us to, to uh, leave from our study in a, in a way in which we have grown in our faith and our understanding of you that we trust you more. That we understand that we are cared for in the best way that, that you care for your people. And Lord, where we lack understanding, we pray that you would help us to understand and even trust you even more. Knowing that you are right even if we don't understand it all. So we thank you for that. We thank you for your guidance upon us, the spirit that we have within us. We thank you most of all for our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles and open them to our study of 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2, we find ourselves focusing our attention on verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. And I was thinking through all of this for our time this morning on this Lord's Day, and it's clear to me that as Christians, we, we have to be careful as we approach a text like this in Scripture. And when I say that, I, I, I mean we don't need to be careful as to the truthfulness of what is being said here by the Apostle Peter, right? For we know by way of the testimony of Scripture itself and the indwelling Holy Spirit that resides within every true believer, we know that every word is true and every word is absolutely correct. There is no error in the word of God. These are the very words of God. And yet, still we must proceed with caution. Why? Because if we are not careful, we can have the tendency to respond to all of this with the wrong attitude. Over the past several weeks in our study, the information that we have been hearing about is often labeled as negative, negative information as opposed to positive information. When we hear what we would describe as positive information or things that are perceived as positive to us, we as people, as just a general characteristic of humanity, we tend to respond to positive things with positive emotions, right? We smile or we are happy or gleeful about the things that we are hearing or the things that we are experiencing and our countenance is, is somewhat uh, joyful in that way. But when we hear information that is negative or information that is perceived to be negative as people, we tend to respond in exactly the opposite way. No more smiles, no more uplifted countenance, no more joy, all of that gets removed. And my concern as we look at Second Peter for all of us is that we do not get caught up in that type of cycle. It is true that the information that we have 
heard recently from the mouth of the Apostle Peter here in chapter 2 is very sobering information. In fact, it can seem rather bleak if we are not careful. Why? Because Peter's words are a warning to us. It is a warning to us that there is an ever-present reality within evangelicalism of their being false teachers. We would like to have the grand thought and the grand idea in our minds that evangelicalism is such a pure place that there would never be a false teacher within evangelicalism. And yet, here we are in 2 Peter chapter 2, and it is clear, just like it was clear from the Old Testament, that there are false prophets, false teachers among us. So this is a warning that that is a reality. That there are those who look good on the outside. There are those who appear to be for all intents and purposes, like the rest of the people within evangelicalism, those who even for a time sound biblical and even sound orthodox in what they teach, and yet they are actually false. They are liars. They are frauds. And therefore, this warning need not be taken as a negative, but rather as a positive. In other words, it is a mercy and grace of God to inform us of it. It is a mercy and a grace of God to help us understand how to identify it so that we can personally and corporately be on guard against it. And so while all of this is sobering and while all of this may seem negative, it is actually positive for every true Christian. And therefore... You and I, as Christians, need not be discouraged. We need not be deflated. We need not have our hope seemingly brushed away, if you will. No, by this very warning, we are reminded that God is still on the throne. By this warning, we are reminded that His Word is still steadfast. Nothing can prevail against him. His church does and shall remain, and every word that he has spoken will come to pass, no matter what it is said and no matter what it looks like, no matter how that may look according to our own human logic. God's word will come to pass. We are reminded of the words of, the, of Isaiah the prophet, who said in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God saying to the nation of Israel, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and the way you do things is not the way I do things, God is saying to Israel. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Much of what we see happening today and much of what we see going on in evangelicalism today can seem rather strange to us at times. We see men and those in positions of great influence within evangelicalism seemingly going in directions that cause us to scratch our heads and wonder, do they even know Christ? And yet here we are reminded that God is still on the throne that God's ways are not our ways, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And so as we begin our time this morning, let us be encouraged by the words of 2 Peter chapter 2. Because while they are sobering words, these are encouraging words for our faith. We can trust our living and true God, never doubting, never doubting Him overtly, never doubting Him in a covert kind of way, in word or in deed, we can trust Him fully. And so I, I say all that just as a, as a backdrop, just as a, a laying of, a, of a, a reminder to us and a caution to us as we approach this, that this is not negative information. And so with all of that said, let us return then to chapter 2, verses one to 10. And again, I want to read these for us. The Apostle Peter says, but false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you 
who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them into pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. And I want us to stop right there because, of course, as we have learned, Peter is making a stark contrast between that which is true and that which is false. And he's doing that by primarily focusing this contrast on the doctrine of the coming judgment, that there is a judgment to come, that judgment is real. Judgment is not a false concept. Judgment is not a a concept in order to keep people down. Judgment is a real reality. And why do I say that? Why do I say that Peter is focusing his attention on judgment? Simply because that is where uh, Peter drives this whole theme when he gets to chapter 3. And he clearly shares with us the false teacher's underlying foundation upon which their false teaching finds its information or finds its founding. Notice in chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Know this, first of all, Peter says, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now, Why is Peter saying that? Why is Peter introducing that? Well, he gives the answer to that very question in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. He says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. In other words, Peter is saying, I wrote you before in my first letter, uh, and we know that to be First Peter. We've studied that book at length, right? I wrote to you to let you know that while you live in the world that not only hates you for believing that Jesus Christ is your Savior right now, they hate you because you identify with Jesus Christ, know that this hatred is only going to grow worse. It's only going to get more and more and more severe. But in Christ, you can remain steadfast. By the power of Christ, you can live like your Savior. You can love each other as you ought to love each other. You can endure hostility that surely will come your way. You can share in the sufferings of Christ, knowing knowing that God, that the God who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter says in his first letter in chapter 5, in verses five or 10 and 11, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the true grace of God. 
So we are commanded and encouraged to stand firm as Christians, to not allow ourselves to be duped by false teachers. Well, that begs the question, doesn't it? What will these false teachers be propagating in their teaching? If we're not going to be duped by the false teachers, if we're going to stand firm in our faith, if our faith is going to remain steadfast to the end, as we have said throughout our study of 2 Peter, then how are we going to identify that? What are they going to be propagating in their teaching? Well, Peter tells us they propagate in their teaching both overtly and yet covertly, mostly it's covertly, that there is no judgment coming by means of Jesus Christ. That's the underlying reality of everything they teach. There is no judgment in Christ. That's the bottom line. That's the, that's the bottom line reality and essence of everything they teach. There is no judgment. Remember what Peter says here, that they secretly introduce destructive heresies. Said that back in verse 1 of chapter 2. They secretly introduce destructive heresies. What heresies are those? What secret heresies are they introducing? And by means of their quality and their content, they are destructive. Well, it is anything and everything that by direct word or by implication, the idea that there is no destruction coming for those who do not have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the idea. They introduce anything, a heresy that's implication is, don't worry about what's coming. It really isn't coming after all. You'll be okay. That if you, even if you don't have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, don't worry about it. There is no judgment. That means that they teach a gospel of easy believism. Easy believism. Just intellectually believe in Jesus and you'll be secure for all eternity. Just say you believe and yet there has no effect upon your life in the future, no effect upon how you treat others, no effect upon your desire to know the Word of God, to look at the Word of God, to read the Word of God, to have a desire to be with the people of God. You just go ahead, say you believe in Jesus and everything will be good. That sounds good. Who wouldn't want that? And in many ways, it's true if that means that through believing, a life is changed by means of repentance and faith. Now strive to live to the glory of God in both word and deed. If that's what is meant by believing in Jesus, then great. But if it's just have this intellectual belief in the facts about Jesus and everything will be good for you, that's easy believism. That's one thing they teach. They teach that God is still learning and doesn't know everything. That God, in just because He is God, still learns about humanity. In fact, He doesn't even know who will believe until He looks down through the future time and see those who will ultimately choose Him. And therefore, because He sees that they will choose Him, then He reciprocates and chooses them unto salvation. God really doesn't know. He isn't sovereign in it. He has to learn that. It's a false doctrine. They teach that when Jesus died on the cross, that he filled a bucket of forgiveness for all sins, all sins that were ever committed against God, and God only gives that forgiveness to those who have chosen him. That's a false doctrine. They teach that it's okay to wait until later to believe. Don't You don't need to believe now. Go ahead, live your life, do what you want, because there's always time. You can always believe later. You have time. There is no judgment anyway. Where is the promise of His coming? In other words, they teach by way of words and by way of implication that judgment isn't really coming at all. In fact, since we don't see the coming of Jesus now, and don't worry about any judgment in the future. All of those things you have been told about Jesus and judgment, they aren't really true. 
Those are destructive heresies. Those are designed to undermine and weaken faith in what God has said. Designed to blaspheme the truth. Notice how verse 2 states it, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. That's what malign means in verse 2. The truth is being blasphemed by what is said and done. In other words, things are being attributed to God or, or removed from the very truth of God, which are attributed to Him, which are not from Him, or taken from Him truth that is true of Him and not being acknowledged as what it said. And so it is blaspheming. And almost shockingly, almost shockingly, verse 2 says, many are and many will follow it. Jesus said it this way, the road to destruction is wide and many are those who are on it, but few, narrow is the way into salvation. Many will follow their sensuality. Many will follow it. Why? Why? Because it's pleasurable. Because it's pleasurable. They use sensuality, it says in verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality, their pleasurable enticements. Follow this way. It's the way of ease. It's the way of escape. No suffering down this road. And why do they do this? Because they're filled with unfettered greed. In greed, they will exploit you with false words, it says in verse 3. We talked about the whole word exploit last time. It's where we get our word emporium. The emporium is a place where you can get anything. A lot of choices, a lot of different ways. And do you notice what they use to exploit you? They exploit, they give you other choices They give you those choices by using false words. They will exploit you with false words. It's interesting. It's interesting that Peter does not use the word pseudo here for the word false. The original language, pseudo, that's the word for false, but that's not the word Peter uses here as the translators translate it as false here. That's not the word being used. It's not pseudo. These aren't false in that way. No. The original word here is plastos. Plastos. In other words, it's where we get our word plastic. These are plastos words. These are plastic words. The idea is that their words are something molded or something shaped. That's the idea. They, are, they shape their words to meet their greed, to fulfill their own greed, to exploit you. They speak molded words. They speak words that are fabricated for the moment. They're words that are shaped to sound and look like what they are saying is really helpful and real. When in fact, it's eternally destructive to the hearer. Eternally destructive to the hearer. We get a little glimpse of this quickly. Just turn over to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. We get a little glimpse of these molded words, these shaped words in the ministry of Jesus Christ. As the Pharisees and the Lawyers of the day were trying to catch Jesus in something. In chapter 20, it says, and it came about on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? And he answered and said, I shall ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? 
They reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, in other words, if we shape our words this way, he's going to say, why did you not believe him? But if we shape our words another way, for men, all the people are going to stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So what do they do? In order to accommodate themselves, they answer that they didn't know where it came from. Jesus says, and I'm not going to tell you either for what authority I do these things. And again, Jesus tells a parable of the vine growers. And after this parable, then the scribes and the chief priests in verse 19 try to lay hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people because they understood that in the parable, he was speaking against them. And so they watched him and they sent spies to what? To pretend to be righteous. There you go. These are false people. They're pretending to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so as to deliver him up to the rule and authority of the governor. You see what I mean? They were, they were shaping their words. They were shaping their very lives. They were doing everything they could in this plastos kind of way. But go back to Second Peter. You notice that the day of reckoning is coming. A day of reckoning is coming, and Peter reminds us God is a discriminating God. God is a discriminating God. Everyone and anything is not acceptable to Him. In other words, there isn't a carte blanche all over the board that anything and everyone and every person and everything will be acceptable to Him. He is a discriminating God, and in verses 4-10, through 10, He gives us three examples of His impartial judgment. And they certainly, there is a certainty behind the reality that judgment will come. Notice verse 4, God was discriminating with the angels. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Peter begins with the fallen angels. This is his first illustration of the certainty and reality that not everything is acceptable to God, that God is certain to judge. The angels. The angels. We hear of them first in Genesis chapter 6. If we were to go all the way back there, we would read the account of the fallen angels, how they had come to earth. And it, it's made clear there in that text that it's prideful rebellion that is their trouble. They are rebellious because they want to be like their, their leader, Lucifer himself, who wanted to be like God. In other words, they followed after their own lust to be like God, which is the driving characteristic of every false teacher. In fact, Paul or Peter even says that in chapter 3 and verse 3 that these mockers will come in their mocking, following after their own lusts. This was the same problem with the angelic realm who sinned against God. They wanted to follow after their own lust, the lust to be like God. And so the point that Peter is making for us is, is that not one angel who was disobedient to God, not one angel who despised the authority of God, went on unjudged. Every single one of them faced the reality of a discriminating God who judged them. Every fallen angel has been judged, and every fallen angel will continue to be judged for all eternity. And that's the point that Peter is making in verse 4. He cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for Judgment, a perpetual, eternal, everlasting, hellish judgment. And of course, what was true of the angelic world was also true of the ancient world in verse 5. And God did not spare the ancient world. <clears throat> but he preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So God did not spare the ancient world when he brought 
this flood upon the world of the ungodly. And there's the reason why the flood came. They were, in essence, in every reality, ungodly. In fact, back in Genesis, it says, every thought and intention of their heart was wicked all the time. And so, like in verse 4, there is a reality of judgment. This time, it's not the angelic realm. It's the rebellious and wicked of the world that are being judged and described here as ungodly, the Asabon, the Asabon. In other words, they had no time whatsoever for God in their lives. That's what that word means, Asabon. It's, it's they had no time for God at all. Now let's not miss it. God discriminated between the godly and the ungodly. God discriminated between the godly and the ungodly, between the righteous and the unrighteous. And judgment came upon the unrighteous, just as God had said it would. And yet we notice that right in the middle of God's judgment is His salvation. It's His salvation because it says in verse 5, Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, He preserved Noah and seven others. It's interesting when you go back to the Old Testament and you read the account of Noah, that it does not say that Noah was a preacher of righteousness in the account in Genesis. All it tells us is that Noah was a righteous man, that Noah was a blameless man who walked with God. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9. He was a righteous, blameless man who walked with God. And yet here, it says that he was a preacher of righteousness, that he preached righteousness. And the conclusion that we can make is that it was a preaching of righteousness with his very life. In both word and in deed, he spoke of how to be right with God. His very life would have been so different from the world around him. His very life itself and the the way that he carried himself in life and the way that he spoke in life, that alone would have spoken loudly to others. How could a man like Noah remain quiet about wickedness and the wickedness around him? He could not. In fact, any person who claims to know the true God is concerned and ought to be concerned with rescuing others from what is to come. Any preacher of righteousness, any life that claims to know Jesus Christ ought to have a concern for others. And therefore, what Peter is saying to to not only the first readers of this letter as he was writing it to them, but to us today, he is saying that we have to choose between what is true and what is false. We have to make a discrimination. And the consequences of that choice will come as certain as it did for all of those who made the choice in the day of Noah. God said it was going to rain. Noah believed God. And Noah took action as God had commanded him to take action. And God preserved Noah and seven others with him. The rest of the world perished. And nothing concerning the character and nature of God changed in the world that followed the great flood. Nothing about the character and nature of God has changed whatsoever. In fact, notice verses 6 through 8. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, And if he wrecks you righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Verse 9 says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. Nothing has changed. This is a striking illustration. Simply because of the wording used, let alone the reality of how we see it. The Apostle Peter says that God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes. 
reducing them to ashes. That simply means in the greatest of ways that he burnt them to a crisp in the outpouring of his wrath. It's the same Greek word used in extra biblical or yeah, extra biblical Greek literature that describes what happened when Pompe- with Pompeii and Herculeum when Vesuvius erupted in AD 79. They even have museums now in those areas, and they still show the 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 ash outlines, if you will, of people who were buried by hot lava ash, reduced to ashes. This is what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. And this total destruction was allowed by God. In fact, it was carried out by God Himself in order to drive home the point to all who come after it. It was this that is an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. Unrighteousness, beloved, will end in complete and eternal ruin. That's what Peter's saying. It will. False teachers come along and say, don't worry about destruction. They come along and say, don't worry about what's happening. Don't worry about how you're living. God is a loving God. Don't worry about it. Everybody's going to the same place. Listen, there are, there are hundreds of false religions out there to say, we're all worshiping the same God. Listen, no, we're not. God is a discriminating God, and there is a judgment to come. All unrighteousness will end and eternal ruin. False teaching and false living always produce spiritual disaster. That's the reality. The parallels for our own day are striking. Sodom was a city known for its affluence. It was the place in which the cities of the plain. They were the place in which everybody was flocking to. It was an affluent place and every form of immorality was accepted in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. A city who thought they had no need for God anymore. And they found out their foolishness way too late. Sounds much like our day in which we live. We have more than we could ever want, more than we could ever need, much more God has blessed upon us and given us in this country as a people, and yet we turn our backs on God and we have no need for God. We accept any form of immorality. We accept, in fact, even those who lead us who are now saying that it's okay to murder a child even up to the very point of birth. That's foolishness. God is not a God who will overlook that. He is a discriminating God. And notice, notice that the mercy of God is still active even in the midst of all of this heinous destruction. Verses 7 and 8 said, He delivered Lot. He rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. How was he oppressed? By what he saw, what he heard. Lot, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Go back to Genesis chapter 19 in your own study sometime. It doesn't tell us that Lot was tormented by what he saw and where he chose to live. It doesn't say that at all in Genesis chapter 19, but he was. He was, and we know he was because Peter tells us so here. And we know that Peter, no prophecy is of the will of man. This is of the will of God. This is God's word. God is telling us what was going on with Lot in his heart. But his rescue was not due to him running to God. Lot's rescue was not because Lot in his own and out of his own righteousness, something conjured up in himself was because he decided, hey, it's time to have God. No, God was rescuing Lot. It was entirely due 
to the unmerited favor of God, that God would dispatch even his angels to go to Lot and warn him and say, come on out of the city. And then those angels had to, in fact, in Genesis 19, drag him out of the city. It was entirely due to the unmerited favor of God, which he still shows to us. Not because of who we are, but simply because of who he is. God has not changed. God has not changed. God is still discriminating. His discriminating nature still stands. In fact, all of history is an example to us of the very trustworthiness of God in all things. God is a trustworthy God. He always carries out His Word just as He said He would. It is authoritative in all things. And it must be the highest authority upon which we live. The Word of God must be the thing that we listen to. It must be the the very reality that we run to. It it must be the very uh, words that inform us and call us to respond in a way that is right and honoring to Him. It is the highest authority. There is no higher authority. It does not matter what men say. It only matters what God says. So the Apostle Peter wants us to know. The Apostle Peter wants us to be encouraged that while it may seem grim, that while it may seem very sobering that God is this way, while it may seem at times very difficult, even within evangelicalism, to recognize the imposter. God is with us. God is with us. In fact, notice what Peter says. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep, verse 9, the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who indulge the flesh in his corrupt desires and despise authority. See, God knows how to rescue His own from the pride and the sensuality and the disobedience seen in, in the three illustrations that Peter gives us here with the angels and Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah. But the full reality is that the true Christian is kept by God from full-blown apostasy. The reason that you and I don't turn our back on God today is not because somehow in us we have this innate ability and desire for God in and of ourselves. No, the reason we don't turn our back on God and apostatize and just say we don't need God anymore is because God sustains us. God holds us. Because God has rescued us. You and I, as true believers, never turn our backs on God redefining Him and refusing to need Him or know Him, not because of us, but because of Him. And sometimes that's a lonely place to be. In fact, it will get even more and more lonely as time goes on in our world, just like it was for Noah and Lot. Noah and Lot stood alone in a world and a society that would not follow God. Their illustrations here are instructive for us. Instructive for us to see that just how it is God delivers His own from the ungodly. We know from Genesis chapter 9, Noah was instructed to build an ark. And for years he endured the ridicule of people around him, those who wondered what he was doing and why he was doing such a foolish thing. We know even from this text that Lot endured years of personal and spiritual struggle because of his foolish decision to go and live in Sodom. And yet at the time of God's choosing, according to God's wisdom and God's plan and God's discriminating nature, God rescued them both. It's a good reminder to us, beloved, God may allow us to face many years of waiting before He intervenes. 
God may allow us to face all kinds of difficulties before He rescues. And He may even use us, like He did with Noah, to help ourselves. God commanded Noah, go and build an ark. God didn't build the ark for Noah. Noah had to build the ark. Whatever God's plan is, we can know that He knows how to rescue the godly. God knows how to rescue the godly. And because He knows how to rescue the godly, we can rely upon God. We can rely upon Him. We may ask, why does God allow His own to be in the midst of this kind of wickedness? Why does God allow His people to have to go through the very things that oftentimes they have to go through? Why is it that we need to be here if there are going to be false teachers in our midst? Why? I think Peter gives the answer in a brief statement. While God knows how to rescue, God also knows how to punish. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, but notice verse 9, He knows also how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Certainly Sodom and Gomorrah and the worldwide flood show that to be true. But don't forget about the right rebellious angels. Don't forget about them. Right? They're being reserved for judgment, it says in verse 4. And here also in verse 9, the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment also. And so while it may seem, at least from our perspective and our human vantage point, that some get away, Know this, they do not. They do not. It may seem as if God has taken the day off, but He has not. He has not. All scores will be settled. He will do an official audit of every word spoken and every deed done. And the ungodly will be punished. False teachers are in the wrathful hand of God. So beloved, Peter is reminding us, he's reminding all of us that while there may be people in the evangelical church today who live ungodly lives by justifying it with righteous words, they go about living sensual lives, perverse lives, lives that contradict the very things of the Word of God, and yet they justify it by using the things of the Word of God as if it is something they can attach to their lives. Those whose very lives say that the judgment of God is not coming, know this, judgment is certain. Judgment is certain. No one will get away with it in the end. God will judge, and God will rescue. He will judge those who refuse Him, and He will rescue those who call upon Him through faith in Jesus Christ. The very God of justice is also the very God of merciful grace who can be relied upon for salvation. The question is, to whom are we listening? To whom are we listening? I want to close our time this morning just by quickly turning over to Isaiah chapter 8. I, I just want these words to be the, the final ringing words in our ears as Isaiah the prophet was speaking to Israel and their foolishness. Isaiah chapter 8, verses beginning in verse 19. God was saying, And when they say to you, Consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Should not a people consult their God? 
Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. They do not speak according to this word. It is because they have no dawn. And they will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. And it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. And then they will look to the earth. And behold, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. To whom are we listening? Should not we as a people consult our God? To the law and to the testimony we must go. Let's pray together. Father, once again we bow before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of the Apostle Peter, a true prophet of yours, who has spoken to us with true words, who has told us just like you would have him tell us, to remember that there is a day coming when all will be judged, that this is in fact true and right. You are a discriminating God, that you will punish everyone who is ungodly and rescue everyone that is yours. And so we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that in Jesus Christ there is life. There is the way. He is the truth. And all who would believe upon him could know salvation in his name. So Lord, we pray that we would not be easily duped by the plastic words of the false teachers. That we would not fall for their shaped words and the desires to exploit. We would not be drawn off by the sensuality of ease, but that we would stay be steadfast, strong, pursuing your word, knowing that it may bring suffering, it may bring struggle, and it may be a long time before you rescue, but you will rescue. And so we thank you for that. We know the day is coming. Honor your name in us as we apply these things in our life, even now, for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.